just come to you and affirm this truth. We owe everything to you, all of it. Every good thing that has come into our lives, every benefit, every iota of grace is from you. And even the hard things, Lord, you use those for our good. And we say thank you for all that you do to make us more like Jesus. We worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. In your name we pray, amen. You can definitely have a seat. I don't know if the rest of you feel this way. You know the, the machine in Princess Bride that sucks away your life? And he sucked, he's like, I just sucked away a year of your life. Tell me, how do you feel? And that's how I feel this morning. And it's only one hour. It's just one hour. It wasn't even like a whole year. I'm just like, oh, my goodness. So just stay with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just lean into the caffeine here. and Hopefully this won't be a two-hour sermon. Um, <laughs> amen. <laughs> amen. Even the amen was kind of... Uh, Amen. <laughs> so a truly humble man. Hard to find. Yet God delights to honor such selfless people. I, I w- went back to uh, my Encyclopedia Britannica this week. One of my grandparents bought me a set of those when I was a kid, and I did not appreciate them at all. And now we have the internet, so it's like, well, whatever. But Went back and, and was reading on Booker T. Washington. I don't know if you're familiar with that name, but he was a renowned black educator, uh, and, and he, he was an incredibly selfless person. I love reading about his life, but there's a particular story that shortly after he took over the presidency of the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, he was walking by himself one day in a very exclusive section of town when he was stopped by a wealthy white woman. And not knowing Mr. Washington by sight, she asked if he would like to earn a few dollars by chopping wood for her. And because he had no pressing business at the moment, Professor Washington smiled, he rolled up his sleeves, and he proceeded to do that humble chore that she had requested of him. And when he was finished, he even carried all the logs into her house and stacked them neatly beside the fireplace for her. And it was a, it was a little girl who was in the house that recognized him and later uh, revealed his identity to that lady. So the next morning, she was, she was very embarrassed. And she went to see Mr. Washington in his office at the Institute, and she apologized profusely. But here's what he said. Um, Booker T. Washington says, Perfectly all right, madam. Occasionally I enjoy a little manual labor. Besides, it's always a delight to do something for a friend. And she shook his hand warmly and assured him that his meek and gracious attitude had endeared him and his work to her heart. And not long after, she showed her admiration by persuading some of her wealthy acquaintances to join her in donating thousands of dollars to the Tuskegee Institute. Now, you hear that illustration, and someone in a crowd could easily misapply that to mean that, well, if we, if we just humble ourselves, God's going to pour out health and wealth and the desires of our heart, right? But that is not the point of the illustration at all. The point is that true greatness, 
true greatness rests in the character of the person. It's the character of the heart. It's specifically their humility, their humbleness. It's not their prestige. It's not the power, the wealth, or influence. It's humility. So we, we, live in a, we live in a culture today that assumes that greatness is a function or a result of achievement. But in God's economy, true greatness is a function of who you are on the inside, your character, who Christ is forming you to be in the inner place of your heart. It was Edmund Burke who rightly stated that true humility, the basis of the entire Christian system, is the low but deep and firm foundation of all virtues. Jesus would put it like this. Here's how Jesus said it. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He who has never been humbled cannot be great. Just think about that for a minute. You can't be truly great if you've never been humbled, if you've never allowed yourself to be humble, because humility is the true test of greatness. But it's God's breathed out word that captures this idea, I think, most succinctly in 1 Peter 5, 5, where Peter writes, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He's opposed to pride. He's opposed to us being proud. And, he, and he's gracious when we humble ourselves before him. So the Christian's character is not exactly a hot topic in the world today, right? I mean, not, not a lot of talk shows talking about Christian character in our culture. And, and then it's even less when you start to talk about meekness and humility and servant leadership. But these attributes are precisely the thing that Jesus wants for us to focus on. Because as we focus on them and as we apply them and as we start to do them and live them, we're becoming more like the Jesus that we love. And so, but there's also a very real danger for us in this. If we neglect, excuse me, if we neglect the importance that God places on our character development, we can, we can very easily fall back into the place where our mindset is more concerned with living a good life than it is pleasing God. And, 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 the, and the Christian life is so much more than just living a good life. We, we, never, we can never lose sight that God's purpose is to restore us fully to his image and likeness. And when you stand before Jesus in glory, you will be given a new body. You will be fully... Uh, regenerated, I guess would, would be the appropriate word, in, into his image. You're going to be glorified in his presence. I can't wait. I can't wait. I got this little hitch in my knee, man. It's, you know, as you get older, you start to get aches. And it's like, I just can't wait to be with the Lord. And losing an hour of sleep feels like a year. It's just like crazy. So with that in mind, <laughs> I'm just going to complain all through the sermon this morning. No. Uh, so with that in mind, let's go to our text this morning. We're, we're in our Harmony of the Gospels, uh, sections 127 and 128, and I'll, I'll call out the verses, uh, the sections here as we go. So this first section, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we'll read all three excerpts here. Matthew 18, 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And calling to him a little child, he put that child in the midst of them and said, 
Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. Here's Mark's account, Mark 9, 33 to 37. And they, this is Jesus and the disciples, came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Because on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Nobody wanted to own up, right? And so he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And then here's Luke's account, Luke 9, 46 to 48. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. <laughs> but Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Here we see a rivalry over who is the greatest among the apostles. I'm trying to figure it out. I've got to know who's on top. Who's number one? They set upon the master to have Jesus settle an argument among them. Contests over greatness always lead to infighting and division, by the way, especially in the church, especially in the church. This is dishonoring to the Lord, and it is antithetical to his will and to his ways. Our, our secularist culture, and you, you just can't, I, I just don't believe you can argue that the USA is a Christian, any Christian nation, Christian culture any longer, that our, our secular culture answers this question of greatness based on merit. Based on merit. What have you achieved so as to deserve all the applause and accolades and praise and prominence? See, it's all about achievement in the flesh. In the flesh. I mean, can you even count how many award shows there are annually? The Emmys and the Oscars and the and the this, and the football hall, of, and, the, and, the, and the thing, and the, and the, hey, let's make much of that person, and that person, and they, oh, that guy can catch a, 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 a leather ball. Woo! Let's celebrate that. Right? It, we just, that's our whole culture. It's all about achievement in the flesh. And, and so um, many, <laughs> well, I won't go into that. I have a whole rant here about actors. The word actor in Greek is hypocrite, by the way. Um, they, they get paid outrageous sums of money to pretend. That, that's our culture. Our cultural value is pretending. Um, and at the end of the day, with, with eternity in view, it's silly. It's silly. And I hasten to add that there are some athletes and actors and prominent people who love Jesus and who are very vocal about it. But that's not the norm in our culture. That's not the, that's not the preponderance of what we see. They're there, and I'm glad they're there, and I'm glad they're spreading the gospel. But the question we ought to ask is, how does God define greatness? How does God define humility? That's the question being asked in the text this morning. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? 
we're all, we're all over here arguing about this, Jesus. Why don't you just settle this for us? It's got to be one of us. I and mean, we're your apostles. We're your disciples, right? It's got to be one of us. So from, from this fleshly, fallen human perspective, they're basically asking Jesus to pick one or two of them to be the chiefs in the kingdom over the others. But instead of even answering the question, Jesus does something else, something that would have been very unexpected and counterintuitive to his disciples. He uses a little child as an illustration to make his point. Remember, Jesus had been consistently teaching his disciples the secrets of the kingdom. And very soon now, he's going to be departing for Galilee for the last time. He's going to head to Jerusalem with the full knowledge of what awaits him there. And yet here are his guys. Here are his disciples. They're gathered together, vigorously discussing something that was very important to them all. Who's greatest in the kingdom of God? And now I just, I just need to tell you, I probably would have flown off the handle and berated these guys. Or more likely, I'd have been in the mix arguing for my place in the hierarchy. Right? One or the other. N- neither one of those is really what we need to, need to do. J- Jesus, Jesus can handle it. All right? Um, <laughs> I'm just berating them. I'm, yeah, I'm not Jesus. Jesus doesn't berate them. I'm not Jesus. Praise God. Somebody say, praise God. I'm not Jesus. But Jesus, <laughs> Jesus doesn't even berate them. I, I just love how he handles this. He's such a good daddy. He, he, just brings a, he just brings a kid into the room, and he puts the kid in front of them and says, so who's the greatest in the kingdom? And I'm sure there was an awkward silence. And then Jesus tells him, look, unless you become like little children, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, he says, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Why why would a child be considered humble in that culture? Well, first of all, they had no rights. If you're, if you're under driving age, let's just say in the room, like, like in the, let's just parallel, you have no rights. That's the culture Jesus is operating in, in first century Israel. And so they had no rights, no power to assert their will. Um, and, and that's a cautionary tale for those of you who are parents of babies and small children. <laughs> so, man. A child seeks truth, and a child uh, wants answers because he or she knows that they don't know. I love that about little children. I love that about, they're so honest. They're so honest. If you put on weight, they will tell you. If, if you are late get, getting to them, or you didn't go through the process of the hugs and everything that you normally do, they will tell you. They will tell you. And it's not mean. It's not you know, guile on their part. They're just, they're just letting you know, right? I love that about kids. And, and, and if you have a four or five-year-old in your family, just ask them to tell you the truth about something. They will. Um, ask them about the concept um, of, of how a 767 gets down the runway and how the plane gets into the air. And you know what they'll say to you? They'll say, I don't know. I don't know. And they're just so honest. I just, I just love little kids. 
I love it. It's really one of the most endearing things about children. They, they know that they don't know, and they'll just tell you straight up. Like, I don't know. And when it comes to the kingdom of God, um, he, he wants us, Jesus wants us to simply take him at his word and believe the way that a child listens to a trusted adult and takes them at their word and believes what they say. Jesus says, you guys need to be like this. You need to be humble. Don't argue about who's greatest among you. Seek humility in every situation. Like humility is the path to Christ's likeness. Te- teach, teach your children, parents, to obey. Teach them to obey and to keep boundaries tight when they're small. There's this, there's this thing called the parenting funnel, and we get it totally inverted in our culture. I almost said something else. I, I gotta watch. I lost a whole hour of sleep. I'm not sure what I'm gonna say. Um, the, the, that funnel, um, what it should be, when a child is born and small and little, all the, all the boundaries are tight. They're tight. You don't let your two-year-old go walk down the street and play with the neighbors. Just, yeah, just be back in a couple hours, kiddo. Right? No. Everything's tight around a toddler and a small child. And as they grow and as they have more aptitude and they take more responsibility and they show more responsibility and obedience, you can open that funnel up. You can loosen the boundaries of the life of that child to allow them more responsibility and more freedom as they show obedience and respect to their parents. That's, that's the funnel. Here's what we do in America. We start here with a baby or a toddler. And we, oh, isn't that cute? Little Johnny's cussing out his mommy, Right? And it's, and it's huge, and the baby, the, 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 the child has no boundaries. They're just allowed to do whatever they want to do. And as they grow, and as they, they, their bodies are growing, they have more power and more, uh, more articulation and more thoughts. The parents are, oh, no, what have we done? We've got to tighten the boundary. And so the funnel the funnel's inverted at this point. And the parents are tightening the reins and tightening the boundaries and the child's getting bigger and stronger and more independent. And that's the recipe for disaster. So you've got to start tight and then let it out, right? We do, we do it upside down. We do it upside down. Little children, little children do not need freedom. They can't handle it. They can't handle it. They cannot reason. They have not learned what is harmful and what is good. Now, later when they're bigger, they've shown responsibility. You can add freedoms and you can loosen your hold on their lives. You can, you can let them make their own decisions, but not when they're small. So it's a failure to understand this paradigm of parenting and, and the stewardship of a child accordingly is one of the things that I, is one of the most damaging things I think that parents can do to a child. Now, if you start by giving a child freedom and autonomy to do whatever they want, you'll raise a tyrant. Maturity and responsibility are the markers that parents ought to look for in their children. And those should be increasing steadily from toddler to teenager to young adult to adult, right? Um, Paul, here's, here's what Paul says in Galatians 4. He says, I mean that the heir, uh, as long as he's a child, he's no different than a slave, because in the household in Israel, that's pretty much the level that children were on. You did whatever the adults told you to do. He says, as long as, as long as it's a child, he's no different than a slave, even though he's the owner of everything someday, if he lives. 
if he obeys, right? But that's not, that's not in the text of Galatians 4. But he is under guardianship. And he's under managers until the date set by his father. There's a parallel for us. The heir of an estate, being a child, had a very lowly position in the household. Children at that point in time in that culture were on the low end of the totem pole. They had very few privileges. They were not fussed over or over-idealized. They were not the center of the family. They were not the fixation of their parents' lives. They were not the center of attention for adults, even adult relatives. Rather, they were expected to serve, and they had very few privileges. Now, I'm not advocating for like, let's flip the whole culture to that. I'm just telling you what, what the reality is here. The expectation on them was to show respect and obedience in all things. So in that context, Jesus continues here in Matthew 18, 6 through 14. He says, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe, he says, verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountainside and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that even one of these little ones should perish. So that's Matthew. Here's Mark. Mark 9, 38 to 50. So, So John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whosoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And then here's Luke 9, 
Two, two quick verses here. Luke 9, 49 and 50. John, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he did not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. It's funny, Luke's usually the more verbose, but here he's the most succinct. But, but so, so John saw somebody casting out a demon in Jesus' name and he wasn't wearing the club patch on his jacket. And Jesus explains to the disciples that if he's not against us, he's for us. But what does stumbling little ones mean? Does it mean children? Does it mean God's children who could be adults? Does it mean both groups? I'll just tell you personally, I think it's both groups. I think it's both. But I would hasten to add that Jesus has a very special place in his heart for little children. And causing little children to stumble. Leading them astray when they're small is a heinous, heinous sin. He, he specifically said not to hinder them in coming to him. For to such belong the kingdom of God. And here he very graphically warns about causing one of them to stumble. And again, this has dual meaning, right? The, the born again children of God, which is all of us and actual children. Uh, you could read that both ways in the text. And I think about the, the depravity of our culture and what children are exposed to today. And every time I hear about a drag queen story hour at a public library, I picture Jesus sending an angel to the quarry to get a millstone. Every time. Every time. I don't know if you know this, like an olive press, a typical olive press, a millstone would have weighed some, somewhere between 500 and 600 pounds usually made of basalt rock, especially for an olive press, because that stone would be hewed as a circle and there'd be a, a pole through it and it would roll in a trough and they put the olives or whatever they were crushing in the trough and then they, the, the donkey or the horse or the ox would go around and around and around and that, that several hundred pound rock that had been made into a wheel would just roll over that stuff and just crush it, just crush it. And it just keep going until it had crushed all the, whatever it was that it was crushing. And so Jesus is saying, I, I want you to picture a necklace. And instead of a little pendant, you have a 500 pound stone. We take you to the edge of the side of the ship where the water's good and deep, several hundred feet. And just shove you right over the edge. And down you go into the crushing black dark. That is the fate of those who cause little ones to stumble. It would be better. That fate would be better, Jesus said. Whew. That's incredible to me. That experience would be horrific. Yet this is a clear indication from Jesus as to how he feels about those who lead others away from the truth and into sin. And we need to take this admonition very, very seriously. I was talking with my son, Ethan, this week about free diving. We were sitting around. Uh, it's so much fun in this stage of life. My kids are older, and we can just have conversations about things like this. And, and we, we, we always end up, uh, I don't think the Fosters aren't with us this morning, but we always end up over at Jeff and Debbie's house on Lake Kai. And um, Ethan, uh, we were talking about free diving this week. We, you know, we're there a lot. And I can, I can go down like 12 to 15 feet in one breath in the lake. 
and um, and I can't stay down for very long because I don't I haven't worked on my lung capacity in a long time, right? But Ethan can go down. He can stay down there longer because he's younger, and um, it's like 15 to 20 feet where we dive, and it's and you can tell like when you get 15 to 20 feet down in the water, you can tell that it's a little colder and a little darker. And it, and it can get a little mm, weird and, and freaky, too. It's like, what's in here with me in this lake or in the ocean, right? And, um, and, and Ethan can stay down a while, and I, I can't. Um, he's younger. But uh, they, say, they, they say Lake Kai is about uh, 65 feet deep where the natural springs that feed the lake come up in the middle of the lake. And, and I want you to know that I would not enjoy diving down 65 feet, even in scuba gear even with lights. I just wouldn't. Um, that's not, and, and, and that's not, that's nothing compared to the crushing depths of the ocean or a place like, you think about the Mar- Marianas Trench, which is the deepest oceanic trench on earth. Maximum depth is approximately 11,000 meters and every meter is about three feet. So just multiply by three. So 30,000, 33 thousand feet under the ocean, down at the bottom of the ocean. Just ponder that for a moment. Millstone necklaces instead of cement shoes. <laughs> this is a big deal. And Jesus goes on. He says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into the hell of fire. That word woe, it means great sorrow or distress, things that can cause sorrow or distress, any kind of trouble. So here's Jesus saying that whoever or whatever brings about temptation to sin deserves woe. So it's a severe issue. And, and Jesus tells us it'd be better to live without whatever that thing is that's tempting you than, than to live with it and receive God's recompense. It would be better just to get rid of it. Get rid of it. You do not want to be the vessel through which temptation comes to anyone. That's not what you want. Better maimed than in hell is what Jesus is saying. And Jesus applies the same logic to our own temptations. We're better off maimed if, if, if our own members cause us to sin. But at the, at the root of it all, at the bottom of, of it all, our hands and our feet and our eyes don't cause us to sin. They don't. It's our hearts. Our hearts are the issue. And this is Jesus calling his people to to lives of holiness and righteousness. It's not just simply that your reputation as a Christian is at stake. And and if you lose some things that you love or like or rely on in this life, that can be hard to take. But in the process, if, if in that process you gain holiness and you gain proximity to Jesus, that's better. That's the better thing. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's better than the inverse. It's better than moving away from Jesus and gaining worldly things. That's only going to be good for the duration of your natural life. And then what? So, so shun that and, and move towards eternal things. I'm going to give up worldly things, worldly accolades, 
for, for eternal treasures. That's the call. And so he, he goes on in verse 10. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who's in heaven. And what do you think? If a man had a hundred sheep and one of them went astray, would he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 because they never went astray. So it's not the will of my father who's in heaven that even one of these little ones should perish. Don't despise little ones. And again, you, you can go with both categories, God's children and actual children. Don't despise. Jesus says that their angels always see the face of the Father. I think children in their relative innocence experience a special dispensation from the Lord. A baby or a child who dies uh, doesn't, as some erroneously teach, go to hell because they were sinners from birth. Because God had already judged them in eternity past and said that, that person's going to hell. And even though they were a baby and they had never done anything except suck their thumb, that, that's just ridiculous to me. I can't wrap my brain around that. Um, if the previous passage about little ones doesn't convince you that Jesus cares for and loves little children, I'm not really sure what else to say to you. Um, I believe the Bible teaches an age of accountability, which is different for each child based on what they know and understand and have been exposed to. And it's different for every child, but God is good. God does what is right. And if you're here and you're a mom or a dad and you're worried about that, then, then you need to make sure you're reading and teaching the word of God to your children and helping them to understand God's word. That's your job as a parent is to get the word of God into your children. So when that's done properly, you will instill a love for Jesus and his word in the hearts of your kids. And Jesus says, he says, if a shepherd has a hundred sheep and even just one of them goes astray, he's, if he's a good shepherd, he's going to leave the 99 to go get the one. And that's the love of the father displayed in the son, carried out in the spirit. He rejoices over the one. It's not the father's will that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And so you and I have this absolute need for the holiness of God. We have a need for it. It's so deep, deeply entrenched in us. Sometimes we don't even recognize it for what it is. We try to fill that void with other things in this world, but we have an absolute need for the holiness of God. And did you know that the Bible says that without that, without the holiness of God, we won't be able to see him. That means we need to strive for holiness in our daily living. We need to shun sin. We need to cling to Jesus as our source of righteousness today. Today, you know, yesterday's gone forever. You can never get it back. And tomorrow might not come. What are, you, what are you gonna do today? What are you gonna do today? Are you clinging to Jesus today? Are you trusting in his righteousness and grace today? In our text this morning, the disciples are jockeying for position to try to determine who's the greatest in the kingdom. And the answer to that question is Jesus. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom. Everybody else can just kind of find their place. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom all day, every day, and twice on Sunday. But in our sin-filled hearts, just like the disciples, we're constantly asking, um, yeah, but who's like number two? Like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm number two, right? I'm, I'm number two. Three? Three's good. Three's good. Trinity, I'm, I'm good, right? How do I rank? How do I rank, Lord? Let me just tell you, we need to just be happy that we're going. Yeah. 
okay? Jesus saved a sinner like me, and that in itself is a miracle. That is a miracle. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven is populated by those who are like little children and also like servants. So in what way? What does he mean? What, what do those two groups have in common? Well, they aren't asserting their will, little children and servants. They're not asserting, well, in our culture, depends on the family. Um, but ideally, they're not asserting their will or their dominance. Instead, they're coming under the authority of another and they're learning to do the will of the one who is over them. Right? This is incredibly practical for us today. Our wills, our preferences are subservient to the one who is over us. And as redeemed people, we are bought with a price. We don't even have the right to self-determination to do whatever we want to do at any given moment. If you're, bought, if you're blood bought, if you're born again, you don't have that right. You need to stop and ask Jesus, what does he want? What does he want? And, and I know that sounds very anti-American. <laughs> Good. So be it. It's the truth of Scripture. There are restraints that the Father has placed on us, and for good reason. We ought to receive the boundaries that he places and the limitations that he gives us with humility and gratitude, because humility is the true test and mark of greatness. He who is not humble can never be great in God's economy. Humility is the test. Nearly... Nearly 200 years ago, there were two Scottish brothers named John and David Livingston. I don't know if you've, known, if you've heard the name or heard their story. Um, but while John had dedicated himself to a life of making money and generating wealth, David, his brother, had knelt and prayed and asked God, what do you want for my life? Surrendering himself to Christ, he resolved, I will place no value on anything I have or anything I possess unless it is in relationship to the kingdom of God. And on his 59th birthday, David Livingston wrote, quote, My Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again dedicate my whole self to thee. And that inscription over his burial place is in Westminster Abbey, and below it reads this. For 30 years, his life was spent in unwearied effort to evangelize. John had set his mind on making money and becoming wealthy, and he did, but his brother David had other ambitions. But as history would have it, John Livingston's name, the, the brother who chose wealth, the pursuit of wealth, it's, uh, it appears once in an old edition of Encyclopedia Britannica. And here's the context. It's simply listed uh, as um, the brother of David Livingston. That's, that's the only thing in the whole encyclopedia about this guy. Brother of David Livingston, that's all. Two brothers, same parents, same family, same culture. One committed to self, the other committed to Jesus in the Great Commission. By your choices... What path are you choosing? What path are you choosing? You don't have to jockey for position in Jesus' kingdom. He's not looking to accept you on the basis of your wealth, your achievement. None of those things matter. He wants your heart. You're accepted by faith alone, 
through the grace provided freely by God himself. It's an inverted kingdom. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. The last are first and the first will be last. Now you might have ambitions of being a superstar in our culture, but I want you to know beyond all shadow of doubt that there's nothing of lasting value apart from Jesus Christ. Nothing. Will you follow him wholeheartedly today? Lord, we bow before you. We ask you to use your word to shape our hearts today. And we would take what has been said here, the truths of your scripture, the the word of God that's been read, that all of that would sink into our hearts, not for the sake of knowing. The, The evil one, Satan, knows scripture backwards and forwards. Doesn't make any difference. We don't want to just know your word. We want to know you. We want you to impact us. We want you to change us, that we would become more like you in our character, in our living, in our decisions. Lord, we kneel before you in our hearts. We bow before you in humility. And we ask you to fill us again with your Holy Spirit and to lead us and guide us in righteousness and in truth for the sake of your name and your reputation. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Jesus said, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. See, God's definition of greatness and humility is, is, is lowliness of heart. He hates pride. He hates it when we get puffed up, but he loves humbleness and meekness. So Jesus points to children as an example of what he's talking about and reminds us to be like them in order to enter the kingdom. So strive to enter the kingdom with faith like a child, humble and meek. Don't lose sight of the truth that humility is the true test of greatness. It really is. And labor to bring as many sinners as you can with you into the kingdom. The days are dark and our time is short. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.